0: on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. We'll bring you the facts and some timely commentary from policymakers, experts, and grassroots leaders from across the country. This week, we'll be talking with David Schiappa, a partner with the Duberstein Group, which is an independent bipartisan analysis group in Washington, D.C. David is a veteran with the United States Senate staff and uh, served in many capacities before coming to the Duberstein Group. Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman will also join the conversation. In fact, she's going to lead the conversation. And our focus today will be on the Senate filibuster. What is it? How long has it existed? And most importantly, what is its future? David and Tori, welcome to the program. Tori, I, I just wanna, you're a Senate veteran like David. So uh, I'm gonna defer to you to, uh, to introduce David more formally and kick off the conversation. Sure,
1: sure. Um, we, I invited Dave here today because for 13 years, He held one of the most fascinating and most powerful staff jobs in the United States Senate. Uh, His job title was secretary for the majority or minority, depending upon who led the chamber at that time. But that job title wholly and completely understates his importance and his authority uh, within the Senate chamber at that time. Uh, Dave's job was to assist the Republican leader and all Republican senators on pursuing their legislative agendas on the floor. He was and and continues to be a master strategist and tactician. Um, If you needed help uh, getting a vote on your legislation, Dave was your guy. If you were boxed out on the amendment tree, Dave knew how to find leverage. If you had a parliamentary inquiry, then Dave had your answer. Um, Dave negotiated regularly with the Democrats on behalf of the Republican leader on all matters which meant he knew every senator's priorities and how to cut a path forward. So in essence, basically nothing happened on the floor without Dave's knowledge and his fingerprints. Um, He has since retired from the legislative branch, which is their loss. Uh, And today, as we said earlier, he advises clients with the Duberstein Group. And I am really happy to have Dave here on the show to talk about the Senate filibuster. So Dave, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks, Bob. Thanks, Tori. Uh, years ago in the Senate, we had something called the Leader Lecture Series that Senator Daschle and Lott would bring in former leaders and uh, president pro tempore and vice presidents, and Mike Mansfield came, and uh, Senator Lott gave a very gracious introduction, and I think Mansfield's first words were, thank you, Leader Lott. I think you put too much icing on the cake. So, Tori, you put a <laughs> lot of icing on the cake, so thank you. Good to be
1: Uh, We're so happy to have you here. So let me do the uh, setup here real quickly. We're here to talk about the Senate filibuster. And let's 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 talk about let's just sort of set the the tone here a second. So um, first, I think it's fascinating that in in this year, we are the Senate procedure is so much in the headlines. I don't think we ever have talked so much about the Senate parliamentarian, the bird rule reconciliation, the filibuster, etc. So as for a procedure geek like myself, this is very exciting. And I think people, Americans are starting to understand that operationally the Senate is very different from the House in some very crucial ways. Most notable, at least for our discussion today is a Senator's general right to unlimited debate which is prescribed in in Senate Rule 19. And Rule 19 is notable for what it says but also what it doesn't say. It allows a Senator to speak uh, without interruption, but it does not provide a time limit on speech or debate. So when the Senate is considering a, a question, in most times uh, it cannot proceed to a vote on that question as long as a Senator wants to be recognized to debate it. In fact, there's only one rule uh, in the Senate that brings debate to an end and to a vote, and that is rule 22, which we call, we call, you and I, Dave, the cloture rule. Um, but some, some Americans and the media, they know it as the filibuster. Um, cloture imposes a bunch of restrictions, but the most useful is that it concludes debate after a 30 hour time limit on consideration, and then of course a vote occurs. Um, so let me start with this first question. Um, has the Senate, always had this cloture feature as part of its rules.
2: Uh, well, quickly, you're, you're exactly right in terms of this year. It's, it is so seemingly unique, especially to two Senate nerds like yourself and, and, and me uh, in terms of how much test discussion there is. And it's it's really fascinating stuff. And I'm sure it makes a lot of people's eyes glaze over when they hear words like reconciliation and filibuster reform. But as, as we will attest, the process is so important to Ah, uh, what happens when it happens? How it happens? So, um, all, with respect to and and you said it at the outset. You know, the 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 right uh, the two fundamental rights for senators are the right to amend and the right to debate, and they're they're paramount to to being a senator. And the right to debate in particular really is, as you noted, addressed in Rule 19, and then really uh, affected by Rule 22. So, you know, Rule 22 wasn't always in existence um, in the in the early Senate days. Uh, they had what was called a um, uh, motion, which was to move the previous question, so it of effectively ended debate on things. Well, in, in about 1806, there was a rewrite of the rules. I think it was Aaron Burr, uh, and and it was inadvertently dropped. It was not used. It was inadvertently dropped. So there were many, many years went by without any structure, rule mechanics to shut down debate. So um, there was a period where it didn't. There was no rule 22, obviously, and it wasn't until uh, 1917. That Rule Twenty Two came in came into place, and uh, it was a very interesting time prior to the, the U.S. entering World War One. But the 1917 cloture rule was is what we're talking about now, and has it been amended and modified periodically uh, up to up to this point in time? Mm-hmm.
1: So, under the Closure rule, basically it says the Senate needs 60 votes in order to end debate on a measure and. Proceed to a vote. Um, obviously, you can have a majority in the Senate with just 51 votes. Okay, so you can be the majority in the Senate with 51 senators, but you need to get 60 votes in order to fin- conclude debate on a measure and proceed to a vote. Um, has has the Senate always needed 60 votes to 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 end debate?
2: Well, they they didn't early on when they had the motion to to move the previous question. But since since 1917, when they put put the rule in place, which actually at that time in in that they remember this was when we get into the history, long history of it. But it was really at the advent of uh, President Woodrow Wilson and something called the Zimmerman note or Zimmerman telegram that was again, there was a a lot of consternation about uh, what was happening in World War I and whether the United States would enter that war. There was a concern I I know by President Wilson about um, uh, German U-boats and frankly, that this Zimmerman note which was an intercept, a diplomatic intercept um, was about Germany trying to enlist the help of Mexico in the advent of of the US going to war. So there was a discussion about arming merchant ships and protecting, uh, protecting ourselves. And there was uh, some members, a few members in the Senate that were adamantly opposed to that, hence a filibuster of the armed merchant ship bill, which caused um, a real uh, conflict in the Senate and began the discussion about the ability of the majority or supermajority to cut off debate, to be able to move forward on, on important legislation, any legislation. So uh 1917. After this long debate, uh, they did end up passing it. It was two-thirds at that point, uh, and modified uh, later to sixty to, to your uh, three-fifths of those duly sworn and chosen sixty, a hard count.
1: Okay, so we 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 created the Senate created this filibuster uh, or this this rule to prevent filibusters. Or initially, you needed sixty-seven votes to to end debate and move forward. Now we need only sixty votes to move forward on legislation. Um, so there has been some past precedent for changing the threshold that you need in order to move forward, to, to, to end a filibuster and, and move forward. Um, I'm curious, so for many Americans, when you talk about the term filibuster, it conjures up images of Jimmy Stewart in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington about the the, the lengthy talking filibusters on the floor where for, for marathon hours, just senators continue to talk and talk and talk and talk and hold the floor. Um, but there aren't many talking filibusters anymore. Do
2: you? Can you tell us why? Sure, sure. And to, to your point too on the changing of the threshold um when that when that was changed by the way and and the one person involved in that it was a bipartisan effort it was Walter Mondale unfortunately is passing uh yesterday um and it was a Democrat from obviously Minnesota but it was also James Pearson a Republican from Kansas so that change in the uh threshold from 67 to 60 was done on a bipartisan basis just just as a side note um yeah so I it's interesting because you hear this about the talking filibuster. And yes, we do conjure up those those Jimmy Stewart. I, I think in large part, it's it's I hate to say efficiency, because people. I don't think people see the Senate as an efficient body. It, it was meant to be the deliberative body that it is. I used to always say the Senate wasn't built for speed. Now, mind you, it was also, you know, people don't expect complete inertia. But I think you don't have the talking filibuster as much be, uh, because it comes down to do you have the votes or do you not have the votes? Do you have 60 votes to shut off debate, to finish, to bring something to a conclusion, or do you not have it? And it just got to the point where we were filing cloture, just cut to the chase. So rather than have members go out there and debate. And there's plenty of debate before you get to the cloture motion. Normally when you're having a regular order process over the years, you would have debate on a measure, you would have amendments on a measure. And at some point it's like water finding its level. The Senate would say, okay, we've had a due process here. Let's go ahead and bring this thing to a head. Cloture may be required to be uh, filed because maybe you couldn't get a complete agreement among modern senators when you were gonna vote. And therefore a leader would need to file cloture. Uh, but hopefully they would get 60 votes on the measure. So oftentimes um, they just cut to the chase on something and we can give examples of messaging votes, unfortunately, uh, bills that uh, are drafted uh, by one party or the other party without the input from, from from one side. And they would be put up for a vote. You'd have the vote to prove that there aren't 60 votes to move forward and you'd move on to something else. So I think that's what you're seeing more than anything is rather than going through a filibuster and inevitably getting to the point where you weren't going to pass it anyway. The Senate, in in some respects, has been more efficient because you prove that you have the votes to pass something or you don't by filing those cloture petitions rather than going around the clock and having people talk, talk, talk and delay. Mm -hmm.
0: Got it, Tori. Uh, this is uh, facing the future. Just want to remind people, I'm Bob Bixby, and Tori and I are talking with David Schiappa, a partner at the Duberstein Group, and Tori is skillfully walking us through the <laughs> filibuster rules so we can all understand what's going to happen or or not sometime later this year. Mm-hmm. So back to your uh, back to your skillful lead council questions. <laughs>
1: Well, I I think we've sort of set a a, a good context for for the history of the filibuster here. I want to bring us into the present day. Um, Senate Democrats right now who control the the House and and have a a very thin uh, majority in the Senate, Senate Democrats are under enormous pressure from their House counterparts and from the progressive activists in their party to modify or just outright eliminate the, the Senate filibuster. Um, There's obviously enormous pressure to get President Biden's agenda enacted before uh, the the midterm elections. Um, The party in power traditionally loses seats in the first midterm elections, so they're definitely feeling the pressure of the clock here. Um, What are some of the paths that Senate Democrats could take in either modifying uh, or changing the, the filibuster rule? What do you think is sort of on the plate for them?
2: Yeah, I think you. I think you set the table pretty well in that because it's a scary thing as an institutionalist. And I've been on the majority side and the minority side in the Senate. And uh, you know, it's always the case if you're in the majority, you're frustrated with the the obstruction or the delay tactics of the minority. And if you're in the on the minority side of the aisle, uh, sometimes you're you're frustrated with the heavy-handed tactics and limiting uh, limiting rules that the majority. Put, puts forward. So, you know, it's the old, you know, where, where you stand uh, depends on where you sit. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I always, when I, when I hear this session about it, and, you know, I, I do truly believe, and I love the Senate, as I said, that we have a majoritarian body in the House. It was set up that way. The Senate is the deliberative body. I get it. Mm-hmm. It's not meant for complete inertia, but the Senate decides when it wants to move and it forces consensus on things. That supermajority vote, 67, now 60, forces uh, consensus and to me that creates durable public policy. If you go back to Senator Bird, many, many years ago, Bob Byrd, famous leader from West Virginia, said the worm will turn. Meaning, mm-hmm. you know, if, if we do what is being discussed. Um, it, it could have horrible repercussions, and you have this whipsaw back and forth depending on uh, who, who's in charge. So, what could they do? Could they do full? Yes, they could do a lot of different things. We use that term, the nuclear option. They could throw Rule 22 out completely and just have majoritarian rule over everything and anything in the Senate. They can do tweaks to it. We have a, and Tori, you're well versed in this. Uh, the reconciliation uh, discussion that is, is underway now and the use of that fast-track procedure. There aren't very many fast-track procedures in the Senate. Fast-track right. meaning a major- majority vote rules the day. There's, there's not many of those statutes uh, created that allow that, reconciliation being one of them. And, but there's a limitation to it, as, as you well know, with the Byrd right. rule put in right. place, specifically to limit what could be attached and bootstrapped into this process they could change that, they could change that. And, and suddenly, instead of a very limited process that has to be has to, uh, undergo a uh, parliamentarian scrub to make sure that these these uh, subject matters should be allowed in this fast-track procedure, if, if that gets changed, then you effectively have neutered the filibuster and you've, you've created mm-hmm. a, um, a fast-track procedure on anything. So I think they could do it a- any number of ways. They could directly attack Rule 22 And and the cloture rule, as we've discussed, they could go at the the bird rule within the uh, budget uh, resolution or budget act of 1974, and they could do some other things. They could do some small in-between things. Getting rid of the motion to proceed, as an example. There is a, a debatable motion to proceed before you get to a bill and that requires the supermajority before you even have the supermajority requirement on the bill, maybe they take some of that off the table. So there's multiple angles and ways that they could change the Senate and how it operates.
0: Mm -hmm. We're about halfway through here, so I just have to take a break. uh, This is Facing the Future. I'm Bob Bixby, and Tori Gorman and I are talking with David Schiappa, a partner at the Duberstein Group, and we are telling you everything you need to know about the Senate filibuster, and we will be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. This is Bob Bixby. I'm here with Tori Gorman, Policy Director of the Concord Coalition, and David Chiapa of the Duberstein Group. We're discussing the Senate filibuster. And if there are two people that uh, know more about the filibuster than David and Tori, I'm not sure who they are. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Or they may be dead. I'm not sure. But anyway, uh, Tori? Um, We're talking about um, what may be happening with the filibuster this year, because it's really become very, very important for the legislative agenda. There's a lot of talk about whether to eliminate it or what those consequences might might be. And you were exploring that with uh, David. So pick up from where you left off. Sure, I,
1: I wanna emphasize a point that Dave made earlier and that was the last time we made any changes to the Senate filibuster, they did it on a bipartisan basis. And there was actually a compromise in, in doing that and that they they reduced the vote threshold uh, to, to end debate and, and move to a vote from 67 to 60, but they kept in place the rule that said, hey, if you wanna go back and change the rules, you're gonna need 67 votes to do it. Obviously Senator Schumer doesn't have 67 votes in the Senate to change any of the Senate's rules. So there's been a lot of conversation as Dave mentioned about using a, a, a nuclear option. Um, I, I won't go into the details on, on a nuclear option uh just because it involves
2: (laughs) involves,
1: yeah it It involves a lot of of senate arcane uh uh, material that that will that will probably only be interesting to people like dave and myself but i did want to point out that we do have a case study to learn from uh and dave i wanted to ask you You know, we used to have a a filibuster, a culture rule uh, in place or a 60 vote threshold for executive nominations, and that's changed. Can you talk to us a little bit about what happened to the executive nomination filibuster and, and, and what lessons Democrats potentially have to learn from that experiment?
2: Uh, yes, absolutely. And to, and to be clear, and thank you, thank you, Tori, for bringing that up, because you know, in the Senate, there are two different calendars. There's an executive calendar, and that is for the Senate to play its constitutional role to confirm nominees. And then you have a legislative calendar, two completely different functions of the Senate operating in two different ways. So um, the filibuster was changed in, in, in 2013 uh, by uh, Leader Reid on the executive calendar and there has been depending on who's uh, in charge who's running the senate uh, which president and which party is, is at the white house there's always a front frustration over the pace of uh, the consideration of nominations it just it just happens and again it doesn't matter if you're a republican or a democrat you're never happy uh, at the, at how how quickly those nominations are being confirmed and put into place so In this case, there was um, Senator Reid ended up using the, quote, nuclear option. It is an arcane, and it's a broad-brush term for changing effectively how the Senate operates by using a majority vote, rather than, as you put it, Tory, normally if you're going to change the Senate rules, it would take 67, if needed. It would take 67 to officially change them. In this case, the nuclear option was using the majority vote to change how the Senate operates, and in 2013, Senator Reid did it for certain judicial nominees. And that allowed them, Democrats who were in the majority at the time to process President Obama's nominations in a much more quicker fashion because it would only, they didn't need Republican support at that point. They could just process them uh, ad nauseum with just a simple 51 vote majority. So that happened and that was sort of a Pandora's box once that was opened. And, and what it had led to, obviously, and at the time there were plenty of warnings and this there was a lot of debate and discussion. I had worked on, I was still in the Senate up, I retired in 2013. We had worked on this and had discussed this and threats were out there for many, many years about whether or not the Senate should have a nuclear option or whether a leader would do that. Uh, but it was there was always a restraint um, at, at some point. And frankly, a lot of it, Tori, you remember the term gangs. Gangs would appear because Folks were concerned about the institution. They were concerned about turning it upside down on its head, turning it into the House. Right. And these gangs, and that was just a, a way of saying a bipartisan group of members would get together who had a great appreciation for the Senate process and say, we're not going to go down this road. Let's figure out a way to make some changes, to agree to some processes here that still allow these the Senate to function without turning it upside down again. Um, so in this instance, Senator Reid went forward in 2013, and despite lots of warnings that folks would rue the day that it happened, well, it did. And I think they did rue the day because of course, Senator McConnell um, implemented a another nuclear option when it came uh, to, to time to consider a SCOTUS nominee, so a uh, Supreme Court nominee. Mm-hmm. So I think once that that arrow was let fly, it was never to be retrieved. And unfortunately, um, the nuclear option became, I won't say standard, but it's now an, in, in some regards, an acceptable way of doing things because there is a precedent. This is how we change the rule. So yeah, I think it was a, I think it was a, a, a bad, that is a case study to learn from because uh, again, if this were to happen on the legislative calendar, we, as we discussed earlier, I'm not sure if there's an endpoint on how the Senate operates. Any new majority would come in and decide we wanna do things differently and we're gonna implement a rules change by taking our side, no input from the other side and making a rules change. Sure. And I
1: I think that's a perfect example of the law of unintended consequences. The Democrats moved first to change the the filibuster rule for for judicial nominations uh, to benefit President Obama. When Republicans gained the majority in the Senate, they changed the rules in order to get Uh, uh, President Trump's uh, cabinet appointees uh, across the finish line, but then they also uh, managed to, to, they reduced the threshold to get Supreme Court justices uh, appointed to the the Supreme Court and Democrats and the Senate had to sit idly by and watch three Trump nominees get appointed to the Supreme Court. I mean, I I have to think that that is a cautionary tale for Senate Democrats as they pursue some sort of, of, of change to the the legislative filibuster. Now, in thinking about that experiment, I'm wondering if now that we know this pathway exists, as you say, it's Pandora's box, we know how to unlock Pandora's box to to, uh, dramatically change the Senate filibuster. Uh, We also have this experiment of the law of unintended consequences, but is there a reason for Democrats to forge ahead anyway believing that if the Senate Republic or if the Republicans ever gain the majority in the Senate, well, they're just going to go ahead and change the legislative filibuster anyway. So Democrats might as well do it now and get, you know, 18 to 20 months worth of legislative activity across the finish line before, just in case they lose the chamber, Republicans come in and do it themselves. So is, is there is there Is there a reason for Democrats to do it because Republicans are going to do it anyway, so let's do it first? Or is there a reason to expect that Republicans wouldn't do it if they were in the majority?
2: Yeah, I I I don't believe they will, and I I I believe, and I take uh, McConnell, leader McConnell, at his word, and and I having worked for him for a number of years, uh, I know exactly how he feels. He is, um, and and remember, what we've to date, we've only done and talked about the executive calendar, a completely different function. It's sort of a binary. You're either going to confirm somebody or not confirm something. Versus legislative, which is a hugely different calendar. how bills you know aff- affecting obviously the American people, tax law, healthcare law, whatever it is. So I, I do not. I do not believe that uh, the that is the right perspective to say if we don't do it, Democrats don't do it, Republicans are going to do it. I don't hear Republicans talking about. It. I'll give you one quick example. Back in 1994. Uh, The Republicans took the majority. It was a huge wave, House and Senate. First time the House in Republican hands in 40 years. The Senate, um, a big, big wave comes in. One of the first votes they took, and this is an odd construct, but uh, Senator Harkin of Iowa offered up a resolution that would lower the uh, threshold for poacher. So it's at 60 he had a resolution that would say, okay, if you failed to get 60 with your first vote, let's lower it three to 57. And if you fail to get 57 in the next vote, let's lower it to 54. If you failed 51, you were eventually going to get to a majority cloture vote. Well, that would have feathered the nest of Republicans. They were now in charge. Why wouldn't they have wanted to have a lower threshold? They didn't have 60 votes, but they had 51. They all voted against it. They all voted against it. Now, obviously, many of those members are, are long gone, but I have not heard in my time there and even. Beyond, I've not heard any Republican talk about getting rid of the legislative filibuster. Uh, I think it's it, you know it's a conservative principle: less is more. I, I think you need to with with um, legislation. You need to form a consensus. You need to form to make durable public policy. You want something that's going to have both sides supportive of it. There's lots of ways of looking at this. Things go through, I, I go back to 20, I think it was 2014, Senator McConnell's view and he laid out you know, uh, what the Senate should do in terms of operations. And he said, it's not a rules change, it's a behavioral change. And I do, I do again, subscribe to that notion that, you know, let bills go through committees. Tory, you were on a committee. You get bipartisan support when it goes through that process, right? You have a buy-in when it comes to the floor. So that's a long-winded way of saying, no, I do not believe that the right perspective is we need to do it now because the other side will do it later if we don't do it now. I do not believe Republicans will bust the legislative uh, filibuster rule.
1: And I think we've got good evidence of that, too. I mean, President Trump really raked Majority Leader McConnell over the coals, both in in public but also on Twitter, for not ditching the Senate legislative filibuster and, and McConnell really was a, a, a bulwark against that change. So I, I, I think there's, there, there's a lot of evidence in, in what you're saying.
0: This is um, in the future, uh, I'm Bob Bixby. We're listening to Tory Gorman and, uh, and David Shapo of the Duberstein Group explain the Senate filibuster and uh, Tory um, closing arguments. Closing
1: arguments. <laughs> yeah, I got a couple of more. So, uh, Sen- uh, Senator McConnell has warned Senator Schumer against changing the filibuster rules. Um, and I-, I don't think he's used the words scorched earth, but he's definitely, uh, if he hasn't used those that term, uh, he's definitely uh, tiptoed around it. Um, I'm wondering what scorched earth looks like in the Senate. I mean, when I was there, there's a lot of regular order business day-to-day minutia that gets done via unanimous consent, which means all 100 senators agree. Yeah, let's do this. Yeah, let's start tomorrow at 11 o'clock instead of two o'clock. Yeah, let's, you know, pass this vote by unanimous consent. So we don't have to all come to the, it's, it's a, it's a, you know, a, a a, a largely supported piece of legislation. We don't need a roll call vote on this. We all agree this is a good idea. Let's pass this by unanimous consent. So I'm curious, what, what happens to a Senate when the, the, the legislative filibuster is changed? You know, scorched earth reigns. How does business get done in the Senate?
2: That's a, that's a very good point because so much is done uh, by consensus, by agreement, by the two leaders, by staffs working together. I mean, he, you you mentioned um, the bills that get cleared by consent. Uh, if you ever are sitting around, those listeners are watching C-SPAN 2 late at night. And, uh, Tory remembers we used to uh, term it wrap up, wrap up. At the end of the night, despite any tomato throwing exercise that occurred earlier in the day on whatever bill was pending, there's a lot of bills, there's a lot of things that get done, nominations, legislative matters, they get cleared, that, that go through committee and that, that everyone signs off. I used to say it was like a duck crossing the pond. You know, It looks like it's effortless, though, that wrap up that time where we're passing things. Below the surface, it's you know feverishly paddling. That's the Senate, the Senate is operating, the, the committees are reporting things out, members are talking to one another, staffs are working together to try to clear things. If you have a a nuclear option and if you turn the Senate upside down, the minority has an incredible amount of leverage. The the, the Senate was built around the minority rules, basically, and there's so so much sand that could be thrown into the gears. No one wants to see that, but it may have to be the retaliation to to remind people that this is not the path to go down. So much between what you mentioned, Tori, just simple little things convening the Senate when you're going to convene. You know, how quickly you think the Senate is slow now. It could be much, much slower if if members decide that they they don't like how the Senate is being operated. If they don't like what's happened, if they feel like they're put upon and run over and they don't have a voice in the process, there is no due process. uh, They're not relevant as part of the minority, which in the Senate, you're always relevant. If that becomes the case there's no incentive to cooperate on on the most the smallest of things. And that will grind the Senate to a halt, I'm afraid.
1: So there's the irony, right? The irony is that, uh, you know, Senate Democrats attacking the filibuster because of what they perceive as, as gridlock in the Senate. Only by doing so, they generate even more gridlock. Is that that's sort of what I'm reading into your comments
2: absolutely true it's absolutely true the, it, it, there is so much again it gets done we, we look at these these again the, the, the fights the, the big public fights the floor fights that we see but surface so many other things you're not guaranteed those other little things are going to get done so you're you're exactly right you're jeopardizing so much other business for, for this you know, nuclear option to have a majoritarian body a majoritarian rule for whatever it is you're trying to put forward it's going to jeopardize so many other things that should get done and should get done with consensus in a bipartisan way.
1: Sure, so normally I'd probably ask one follow-up question, but Dave, I'm gonna give you the opportunity. If, if there is a, a, a piece of advice, if there is a, a voice that you'd like to lend to this debate, uh, do you have anything that you'd like to say to uh, the <laughs> 100 members of, this, of the Senate as they are, are, are contemplating the future well, of the filibuster?
2: You know, I've been a part of the sort of these rules discussions and the frustration. I've been on both sides. As I said, I've been frustrated and and, um, have looked at this through different lenses. And, you know, again, the case of unintended consequences is where I typically default to Tory, which we talked about, which members will come forward. And I've had lots of conversations with senators who come up with some ideas and I'll usually look at them and say, "Okay, I, I understand what you're trying to accomplish, but here's what could happen if we did that. And so I think we just need to step back a little bit as we talk about these things and just be reminded that there are consequences that occur. Um, I I don't mind, you know, and if the Senate is is organic to the degree that we know it's a continuing body and the rules uh, continue from one Congress to the next but they have been periodically changed and it is worth looking at them. It's worth making changes. I was a part of many rules changes over the over the years, whether it's going to conference, we won't belabor that now, but so mm-hmm. I think it's smart to let's talk, but I think they should be done in a bipartisan way. Let's figure out what can work better for members. You know, look at motions to proceed. If that's, if that's you know, I'm not suggesting every motion to proceed that's debatable, that ought to be taken off the table, but I think they're worthwhile conversations. Those conversations should occur before we, or someone willy-nilly throws an entire uh, book, uh, r- excuse me, rule out off the books and changes the Senate in perpetuity. So it's no longer the deliberative body. I'm not saying complete inertia. I'm just saying deliberative body so that it they figure out the Senate, again, like water finding its level, decides what it's going to want to cut off debate. And that's what they've done over the years. I've been uh, privy and part of, of uh, lots of legislation that people thought, oh, well, we're never going to get to an end of it. We got to a conclusion at the end of it. Tori, you're well versed in the budget process. People used to talk about the voter Rama. Uh, yeah, I don't know if you've talked about it on this show before, but it's an ugly process. It's it's voting, 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 voting. But there's never been a budget resolution that uh, was filibustered by voter We always got to an end, whether mm-hmm. it was fatigue or something else, four o'clock in the morning, we finish it. So I think. Always being mindful and careful that you, as you try to construct a new mousetrap of rules of how things work in the Senate or should work in the Senate, you could be creating other problems elsewhere. The Senate has worked with the current set of rules, obviously with some modifications, for many, many years now, and we've gotten our work done. We pass an NDAA, a defense authorization bill, for the last 60 years. We don't always do appropriations perfectly, but we fix on the government. There's so many things that get done uh, that you know, we, we've worked under the existing rules. We just have to go back and maybe make some behavioral changes. Mm-hmm.
1: Dave, I could talk to you about this forever in a day, <laughs> and I could really dive down into the minutiae and would be love to have a conversation about BIRD, reconciliation, voterama, and all those other things. But we've run out of time today. But I did want to thank you for your, your generous use of your time. And thank you for being here
2: today. It was wonderful to speak with you. Absolutely. Anytime. It was great being with you both.
0: And next time we'll talk about Votorama and bird baths and uh, or baths, whatever (laughs) you prefer. This is Facing the Future. I'm Bob Bixby. Uh, Tori Gorman and I have been talking with David Schiappa, a partner at the Duberstein Group. And we've been discussing all things about the Senate filibuster. I'll be right back after these short messages with some observations about paying the bill for infrastructure. Welcome back to Facing the Future. This is Bob Bixby. President Biden's $2.3 trillion American Jobs Plan is noteworthy for two things. First, it greatly expands the definition of infrastructure. And second, it's eight years of proposed spending is designed to be paid for with increased corporate taxes over 15 years. Both of these things pose obstacles to swift passage. The more issues that are tucked under the infrastructure umbrella, And the narrower the range of revenue options to pay for them, the more difficult it will be to reach consensus on what's in the bill and how it's paid for. So this has led some to suggest that Biden's original proposal be split up into two legislative packages, one containing traditional infrastructure, like roads and bridges, and a second package for the remaining items. The thinking is that a bill focused on traditional infrastructure might be able to attract enough Republican support to survive a filibuster in the Senate. That means getting at least 60 votes. Democrats could then attempt to move the second package through the special budget reconciliation project, uh, process to, as they did with the COVID bill. Legislatively, that may make some sense. A number of Republicans have signaled their support for a large infrastructure bill, perhaps even up to $800 billion so long as it remains focused on traditional items such as transportation and water projects. But one big question lingers over the dual track approach. Would negotiators maintain the commitment of Biden's original proposal that an infrastructure bill should be paid for? Republicans who might be tempted to join Democrats in a big spending bill for roads, bridges, and other physical infrastructure, have made it clear that they will not accept any of Biden's proposed tax increases on corporations. They might be open to user pay alternatives, such as a gas tax increase, a new vehicle miles tax. Some have even suggested a carbon tax of some sort. But those options would violate Biden's pledge not to raise taxes on anyone earning less than $400,000 a year. So, if the two sides can agree on spending up to $800 billion, but can't agree on how to pay for it, what happens? Some are already suggesting that they just off the offsets. In other words, don't pay for it at all. That would be a very bad idea. We're no longer talking about emergency spending to fight a pandemic or provide temporary economic relief. An infrastructure bill would be part of the regular budget, and it should be paid for, particularly given the fact that the debt already exceeds the size of the economy. The budget is projected to go another $12 trillion in the hole over the next 10 years, and the Highway Trust Fund is headed for insolvency as soon as 2022. It would be good to see Congress get together on an important agenda item, such as an infrastructure bill, but it would not be fiscally responsible to split up an overall package that was meant to be paid for if the net effect would be to exempt a large portion of it from the difficult task of finding offsets. Regardless of what counts as infrastructure, if we want more of it, we need to pay the bill. This is Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Thanks for tuning in We'll be back next week with another edition of Facing the Future.